Hello. 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 And welcome to Mobilize. Mobilize is a podcast that puts a spotlight on and is a resource for people, people, friends, communities, communities activists, activists who've decided to stand up, resist, 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 fight back, mobilize. Each day, together, together, we shine a light on the we truth. Shine a light on the we truth. focus on the things that unite us. We pull each other up. We celebrate, we celebrate our, our shared humanity. humanity. Episode 17, Catalina Cruz, a dreamer in Queens. Catalina Cruz is the first dreamer to run for office in New York State. She came to the U.S. at age nine from Columbia and grew up to become a lawyer, a public servant in both city and state government, and now a candidate for the state assembly in the 39th district in Queens. We spoke about what life is like for undocumented Americans and how she wants her candidacy to provide an example of how young women of color and immigrants can make their voices heard and fight back against the Trump administration at the state level. Thank you for coming. Thank you for having me. Tell me about your district. What are the issues that you see that are really important to this district? We are a district of immigrants where more than 100 languages are spoken. You have folks who are permanent residents or citizens that can vote, but you also have folks that are undocumented, that might have DACA and are in danger of losing it, that might be refugees. They still have a voice that needs to be heard. They still have needs that need to be met. At the city level, we've had great uh, movement when it comes to protecting the rights of immigrants, and I feel proud to have been a part of that. But we are nowhere where we need to be to protect immigrant New Yorkers from the attacks of Washington. We have a vibrant South and East Asian community. Lots of them are small business owners who are suffering because we don't have solutions for them when their rent is being increased to levels that force them out of our neighborhood. While you have other parts in the district where the MTA is the major sticking point, because these are folks that use public transportation every day to get to work, yet are constantly late because the MTA just doesn't function. When it comes to education, it's class size that affects our children's ability to have a healthy learning environment and to feel like they actually can get out of their education system what was intended. And for members of our Muslim community, it's important for them to get access to food that recognizes their religious needs, which we don't have right now. Healthcare. In our district, I often see, especially in immigrant communities, the mental health is not given the importance that it should be. That we are often more ashamed to go and say, hey, I'm going to go to the therapist because I want to be well. Because people are going to be like, oh, this person's crazy. So I want to push for funding to create permanent programs that are culturally sensitive and that are holistic in their approach to mental and physical health. Housing. My mom loves our district, but she can't afford to live in our district. Why are we pushing people out? in the name of greed and in the name of making more money. We need at the state level, because it is at the state level that we control the rent laws, solutions that maintain permanent affordability. So if we have programs that are going to give tax breaks to developers, then you got to give us something that's permanent, not just affordable housing for the next 10 years. 
And then the threshold that protects rent-stabilized tenants needs to be increased. Can you list for me some of the legislation that you specifically are going to try and push? Well, it's more like a packet of legislation. Okay. For example, um, with the MTA, I'd like to see the MTA broken up into smaller agencies. So that's going to require legislation that would give the trains and the buses back to New York City to manage. It's a huge change, but we're going to fight for it because you can't continue to do the same thing over and over again and expect a different result. And um, the other packet of legislation will take rent stabilization and expand uh, the threshold. Currently, it's 2500 take it to 3000 I mean, I'd love to see it at 3500 but I have to be realistic. I'm going to get a lot of pushback on that. And the packet of legislation that would make New York State a true sanctuary state. You get to bar state agencies from sharing information with the feds. You'd get the DREAM Act to finally pass. You'd get driver's licenses so that people around the state of New York can drive safely. What is your story of of coming here as an immigrant? It sounds like your mom was a single mom when she came here. So I think my family story is almost like that poster anti-Trump narrative because he has been talking about chain migration and using that to gain brownie points, if you will, with his supporters. I was born in Colombia. I immigrated with my mother when I was nine years old, and we lived as undocumented Americans for close to 13 years, a little bit over a decade. We initially came here following my mom's partner then. That relationship didn't work, and you're correct. She was and is a single mom. When we came here, like many immigrants, we had to struggle. My mom sold empanadas and tamales at the soccer fields. She gave off flyers on 82nd Street and Roosevelt Avenue. She was a domestic worker. My ability to become a citizen happened after I married my high school sweetheart. We were together for a very long time. That Ultimately, that marriage didn't work out because we married too young. But I was then able to become a legal permanent resident, a citizen, and petition for my mom. There goes your family reunification. I was able to help my mom stay here with her four U.S. citizen children. Otherwise, she would have been deported. I would have been deported. And what was the reason that your family came in the first place? Was it economic? Was there uh, political stuff going on? A little bit of both. Okay. So when we lived in Colombia, my mom, she worked for a small community clinic managing a tuberculosis prevention program in a very poor neighborhood. So this was during the tail end of the Pablo Escobar era. I distinctively remember stories of how scared she was to go to work. On one New Year's, there was actually a shootout inside of the health community center where she worked. I think she was looking at the long term of how am I going to make sure that my daughter is going to be okay? She makes all these sacrifices, pretty much sells, because I remember this, everything we owned and goes and gets that visa and we come to the United States. And it seems to me like you could probably have been given some sort of protected status, but yet you weren't. In Colombia, folks from outside of the country, we've been fighting to have the American government understand that what we had was a civil war. What we had was a drug war that was killing millions of our people. And we fought for TPS, which is temporary protected status for Colombians. And it didn't happen. For 30 years, you know, our people were dying. One of my uncles was kidnapped twice. You know, he's a he's a news reporter. The American government, I don't think that they saw that there was anything to be gained from providing easier access for us to migrate. 
And I think the problem with that is that they're seeing it as a, what can we gain from it? Rather than a humanitarian viewpoint of how do we help these other group of humans that need us. Can you talk about the experience of being undocumented for people who really don't know anything about that in a way that explains, you know, how difficult it is on a day-to-day basis? For undocumented folks, it's taxation without representation because we are taxed. My mom paid taxes every year, but we don't get that money back. My mom is not going to be able to access that part that she contributed while she was undocumented, when she retires. And there's thousands, if not millions, of undocumented Americans, because these are Americans for all intents and purposes, just they don't have that little paper, who have lived here, who have contributed millions of dollars into the uh, social security system, yet they can't access it when they're going to retire. For me, it was my ability to access in-state tuition when I was then forced to work full-time. We're talking 30, 40 hours, sometimes more a week, while going to school full-time. It's also, as a child, my mom would go to work, and I'd go into what now has been diagnosed by my friends as the Hispanic panic, because I'd go into literal panic modes if she was late, because all I could think about was immigration picked her up. I'm never going to see my mother again. And also things like uh, you don't feel like you have access to legal protections. So it makes you so much easily a victim of fraud, a victim of domestic violence, a victim of any type of crime because you can't Absolutely. go to the police. And even if you could, would you? First is, is the lack of knowledge that you even have access to those services. And then do you even want to access them? Because you might try to go to the police because I've had clients where this happened to them, where the first question is, where are you from? And what an immigrant here is, do you have papers? That's what they hear in their head. So thankfully, we've come a long way since then where we have policies in the city where we don't ask that information anymore. But that wasn't always the case, and people still remember that. So when you have a young immigrant mother who was the victim of wage theft because my mom was a victim of wage theft, where she got hurt at work because my mom got hurt at work. She didn't know where she could access the information. She didn't even know the help was available. And I honestly think that even if she had known, she probably wouldn't have come forward in fear that she could be discovered and be deported. Mm. Tell me about issues of fraud, notarial fraud and things like that, that immigrants have to deal with and why that's an important issue for you. So in Latin America mainly, a notario A notary public is also an attorney. In the United States, you don't have to be an attorney to be a notary. You simply take that test, you get that stamp, and you go on about your business. So when you get new immigrants from Latin America, where they're used to seeing that a notary is also an attorney, they don't make the distinction. Back when I was in, I think I was in high school when this happened to us, um, my mom meets this woman who claims to be an attorney, promises the world to her at the cheap price of, I believe it was $3,000. But for us, it was a lot of money because here's my mom working odd-end jobs trying to figure out how we're going to pay for food, but we have to come up with $3,000. And what was the money you going to pay for? For her fees and for them to process our legal permanent residency quicker. It ends up that she disappeared and ultimately realized that this woman was not an attorney. I just think she was someone that set up shop and she was very well presented and she spoke so well and she seemed to know what she was talking about. And here are two immigrant women who have no knowledge of the law and there go $3,000. 
My mom was heartbroken. I was heartbroken. Fast forward to my last year of law school, and I am fortunate enough to know the now judge, Jenny Rivera. She's the only Latina on the appellate court in the state of New York. Fierce Puerto Rican woman, fantastic professor, has my resume. Somehow it makes its way out to the attorney general's office, who was then Cuomo, to the Civil Rights Bureau. I get a call. Hey, do you want to come in and intern for us? Of a guy who had a column in a very reputable Latino newspaper, and he would give legal advice. He was not an attorney. And he was basically running a pyramid scheme where he would tell people, give us 100 bucks a month, and when immigration catches you, we'll give you an attorney. Except he was going back and saying, give us another $4,000 and we'll give you an attorney. We ended up shutting this man down, and he ended up having to pay restitution for victims. I believe it was $2 million, which it wasn't enough because there were so many people that we didn't know about or were too afraid to come forward to get that money. But it started a fire in my belly about going after people that defraud our community, to take advantage of the hope and the dreams and the hard work of our community. A couple of years later, I am the counsel to the Immigration Committee at the New York City Council. A request lands on my desk, and it was from Councilmember Daniel Drum asking that we write legislation to go after notarios, hold them financially responsible, and if egregious enough, criminally responsible for defrauding our communities. Earlier last year, it finally was made into a piece of law, and I tell Daniel all the time that it was the honor of a lifetime getting to write that for him, getting to see it in action in our community. Especially when we started to see that just as we all suspected, Trump was going to come after immigrants. It was extremely important that we see the fear that people become that much more vulnerable. We have legislation that is key to protect them. So it sounds like this is a big part of why you became a lawyer and got into politics in the first place. Can you tell me about that? So when I went to college, I knew I wanted an education. I knew that I wanted to dedicate my life to fighting for folks like my mom, but I had no idea what I was going to do. I went to John Jay thinking, one day I'm going to become a cop. Can you imagine that? I didn't even have papers. Toward the end, I ended up meeting Ernie, who changed my worldview of what attorneys should be. He was an immigration attorney. He's still an immigration attorney. Was it your attorney? or was He, he was my attorney. Oh, okay. Yeah, he did everything pro bono and shows me what it means to practice with passion and with love and with empathy understanding that what you do and what you do well could change the lives of one or millions of people. I got into CUNY Law School. I go work in legal services, representing low-income tenants. I then get recruited to work back for the Cuomo administration and as the counsel to the Division of Immigrant Affairs at the Department of Labor, where I did labor trafficking investigations and community education. I then get recruited by the Speaker's office, the Melissa Margarito's office back then, to come be the counsel to the Immigration Committee and do special immigration projects for her. After that, I get drafted back to the Cuomo administration, and I manage the Exploited Workers Task Force for about a year and a half. We got $4 million of stolen wages assessed. We were able to allocate $5 million to programs that help health and safety worker protection. And the one thing I'm proudest of is I was able to establish relationships with advocates and workers that routinely did not trust government, especially in the immigrant community. And then I am given the opportunity to be the chief of staff for council member Julissa Ferreras Copeland, who at the time was the chair of the finance committee. 
And she was an extremely dedicated public servant, not a politician. And that's one of the reasons why I loved working for her so much. She makes the hard decision to not run for re-election. The current assembly person at that time runs for Jalissa's seat, wins, and there we have a vacancy in our district for assembly, which for whoever's listening that might not know about New York politics, there are no term limits in the state assembly or senate. So you can get the same person in a seat for decades at a time, yet still holding the same views and not understanding or working for the necessities and needs of the community that have actually evolved during that time. The president had just gotten elected, and I find myself capable, ready, and willing to fight to represent one of the most diverse districts in the entire country that needs that representation now more than ever. What's the difference between the Assembly and the New York State Senate? What's going to be the difference in your job specifically? There are more Assembly members. It usually is like two Assembly districts make up one one senatorial district, more or less. And we get to work on the budget and proposing legislation, but they get to ultimately push it forward. It's not necessarily that that's the way that it was meant to work, but that's the way that It has ended up working because of how politics are in New York. I mean, I'll give you an example. We have been passing the DREAM Act for years now, and it passes the Assembly, and somehow it always gets stuck in the Senate. Mm. And do you think that has something to do with the dysfunctional nature of New York state politics and even with the IDC? I think it has to do with both, because we also have to recognize that even before the IDC came along, things were still not moving in the Senate. So, yeah, they have been a major part of it now. Things still didn't function before. So we have a special election, which is a weird sounding process to me. And you were running in the primary in September. So in the state of New York, there are two types of special election. State level, you don't have a primary. It's literally like the party is saying, here's who gets our nod. So for this special election, it was Ari Espinal, and it's an automatic win. In the opinion of many of my district supporters, in my own opinion, we're just being given no choice. So the decision that was strategically made with our team was to run in a truly democratic election, which is the one that will happen on September 13th. Although it's only two candidates right now, I am sure there are more people will come forward. And that's what we want to see. We want to see people have choices. And what's the difference between the two of you, if you could sum it up? I think the biggest difference is the track record of actually delivering results for our community. I've been doing public service. I've been an actual public servant without the title of an elected for close to 10 years. And I want to simply take that to the next level. Define that difference between being a politician and being a public servant. Being a politician is about the title. I am a council member. I am an assembly person. I am a congressperson. Being a public servant is understanding that it's about the people who put you in that place. It's not about you. It's not about how much you get paid. It's not about the $4,000, the $3,000 big donors. It's about every single voter who on the day of election put their trust in you to lead the community in the direction that they need it to be led. And how do you see that distinction between public servant and politician playing out in New York state politics? Because I think it really does sometimes. Absolutely. I think that when you don't have term limits, people tend to start off as elected officials, as public servants, and end up as politicians. Because they get complacent, they start to get power hungry, and you end up with folks that forget who put them there in the first place. 
what you're doing as a political candidate, who is a dreamer and who is a woman, why is this important now? And why would you like to be an example to other women, to other immigrants in terms of what you're trying to do? This is so much bigger than me. Yes, I want to represent my district. But in the context of the national climate, it's about showing the world what dreamers are really about. It's almost like, no, you don't get to tell us that we're bad people. You don't get to take the rights of women. You don't get to push us into a corner and make us hide in the shadows ever again. So what I'm hoping my campaign does is show women of color around the country, immigrants around the country, undocumented young people that we can do this, that you have partners, that it's hard, that it's scary, but that we will do this, that we will protect each other, and we're not going to let the president steal the soul of our nation. What do you say to people who are thinking about running, people who are thinking about becoming activists to get them excited? I think everyone should do it. I think we each have a voice that's important to be heard. But I think you also have to prepare yourself. I love the spirit of young folks saying, I'm going to run. But I often have actually seen folks out there that are idealistic and don't understand how hard it is to actually do it. Because you got to get up every day and go knock on those doors. You got to get up every day and beg for that money because this takes money. You got to get up every day and understand that you're now a public figure. More importantly, you have to make the commitment to be a public servant and not a politician. And I noticed something that you said in another article where you talked about the fear of putting yourself out there, you know, as a person of color and as a woman, that you're going to get some pushback. Oh, I already got them. Pushback. Yeah. I already got them. I already got my own private little trolls on, on Twitter, which is fine. And I think it's the fact that I grew up constantly being told, you don't belong here. You don't speak the right language. You don't have the right accent. So when you step into an arena where you're told, you don't have the political party support, you don't have the money support, you don't belong here. It becomes a little easier because that's what my entire life has been about. But if you are new to this, you got to get used to it. You got to get thick skin. I've heard of a male politician in our district who has questioned whether the policies that I came up with, I came up with them on my own. Does it get more elitist and sexist than that? I've been working for 10 years on issues that have to do with improving our community. But somehow it must have been a man or it must have been somebody else that came up with them and not me. So you have to be prepared for being questioned, not just when you run, but when you win. And not just when you win, but when you're actually doing the work. And you have to remember, this is not about you. This is about the seniors that need the services, the immigrants that need the protections, the mothers who are counting that you're going to fight to make sure that the class sizes for their children are small so that they can learn. That's what it's about.
Thank you for listening to Mobilize. To find out more about No IDC, visit noidcny.org.